You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Today, I do not want to talk about what truth is yet. That's next week. Today, what I want to do is talk about what truth does. Say what truth does. Because truth does something, no matter what your truth is. So you can have whatever truth you want to have or whatever truth you want to look at. And the reality is truth does something. So I'll talk a little bit about what it is, but not in total. That's next week. Today we're going to talk about what truth does. I want to start this way. Andre Sarkov, 1921 to 1989, was a Soviet physicist who became, in the words of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, a spokesman for the conscience of mankind. He was fascinated by uh, fundamental physics and cosmology and spent the first two decades of his life or of his career designing nuclear weapons. He became regarded as the father of the Soviet hydrogen bomb, contributing perhaps more than anyone else to the military might of the USSR. When he came to the end of his life, this was his conclusion. And I quote, I've always thought that the most powerful weapon in the world was the bomb. And that's why I gave it to my people. But I've come to the conclusion that the most powerful weapon in the world is not the bomb, but it's the truth. That truth is the most powerful weapon in the world. Since the beginning of civilization, people have sought to answer this question. What is truth? And whatever their answers were, they concluded or they concluded it did something to them. It made them do something. Even if they answered that there's no such thing as a truth, which in and of itself is a self-defeated statement, it still did something. People like Galileo, who once said, all truths are easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them. Or like Buddha, who once said, three things cannot be long hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. Or like what Mark Twain once said, truth is, a stranger than, truth is stranger than fiction, but it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. Or like Abraham Lincoln once said, I am a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can, depend, they can be dependent upon to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts. Or like Winston Churchill, who once said, Truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it. Malice may distort it. But in the end, there it is. Or like Mahatma Gandhi once said, An error does not become truth by reason of multiplied propagation, nor does truth become error because nobody sees it. Or Dr. King, like he once said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil, triumphant. Or like Frederick Nietzsche once said, and yes, I am quoting Nietzsche in church. You should all read him. There are no facts, only interpretations. <laughs> which again is a self-defeated statement because to say there are no facts, only interpretation is to espouse a, say it with me, fact. <laughs> right, like a truth. That's like saying all truth is relative. Well, to say that all truth is relative is again a self-defeated statement because to say that all truth is relative is to propagate a truth. 
To say that there is no absolute truth is a self-defeating statement because to make the claim that there is no absolute truth is to make a claim of truth. Doggone it, that truth. You just can't escape it. You can't get away from it. We're wired for it. There's nothing we can do to run from truth. Because even if we say there is no truth, we're positing a truth. Truth is inescapable. So it's important to at least know this. Truth does things. Truth does something. Truth makes people do something. And that's important. Which is why I think maybe one of the reasons why the scriptures give us the testimony of Jesus that it does. John chapter 1 verse 14 The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, read this with me, full of grace and truth. Or John 14, 6, Jesus' own claim about Himself. Jesus said, I am the way and the life. No one comes to the Father except to me. See, Jesus, when He said, I am the truth, He meant it differently than the way we talk about it in slang when we say things like, yo, Robin is the truth. Jesus meant something entirely different. Pastor and theologian Brian Zahn once said, these words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, belong to the category of words that can only be spoken by Jesus without them sounding like unmitigated egotism and sheer lunacy. Try to place these words in the mouth of any other great sage or leader and see how it comes across. Could Plato or Lincoln or Gandhi utter such words? Of course not. Muhammad could not claim to be a prophet and Buddha or Muhammad could claim to be a prophet and Buddha could claim to know a way, but they could not dare to make the audacious, audacious claim of being the way, the truth, and the life. That these words fit in the mouth of Jesus and only Jesus is another testimony to the fact that he is the only begotten Son of God. So if truth could be defined as that which is in accordance with reality, that's what truth could be defined as, then I would say that for the Christ follower, truth has to be defined as this. It claims that are faithful to the reality consistent with the compassionate purposes of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, truth cannot just be merely a fact, an idea, or a position. Truth is a person first and foremost. All ideas, facts, positions flow out of this person who has called himself the truth. So if you and I hold views of truth that cannot be embodied in the life and the teachings of Jesus, we might want to rethink our definition of truth. If we want to say something is true, about life and salvation and humanity and society and God and country and all these other things, and we cannot see it proclaimed or embodied in the person of Jesus, then we might want to rethink what we are holding out to be truth. We live in a society that has built itself primarily on the values, at least it seems to me, of consumerism, anxiety, fears, violence, and self-preservation. And what I mean by that is, we seem to be very concerned about image, success, self-preservation, American exceptionalism, and personal affirmation. And all of those things have come to the top 
And they seem to frame and form what we believe to be as true. In other words, if it makes, if it makes America great again, then it's true. If it makes my home have peace in its life, then it must be true. If it will make me successful, that must be true. And what we have done is we've reversed it all. And we've negotiated what really is true for what we hold and esteem as more or better than truth. And so then we're left with classes like situation ethics. Or we're left with beliefs that all truth is relative. And we are left then with an anemic church in North America, in these United States, in Williamsburg, Virginia. Because we're no longer a community of truth. We're a community of something else. And Jesus says, truth is not just a fact, an idea, or a position. Truth is a person. And that's the first blank in your bulletins. Truth is not just a fact, an idea, or a position. Truth is a person. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about what truth does. So we're going to move through a lot of Scripture. We're on Kenyan time today. We're going to move through Scripture if you have your pens, please use your pens on your bulletins. If you don't, take someone else's if you're bigger than them. Um, don't do that, really. Um, let me know and I can get you what you need. All right. John chapter 18, verse 19 to 20. So what happens when truth meets people in positions of power? What does truth do when it comes into a confrontation with power? John chapter 18, verse 19. This is Jesus before the high priest Annas. All right? The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. Listen to Jesus' language. I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple complex where all the Jews congregate, and I, have, I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? I mean, I've been wide open with everything I've said, transparent as the day is long. Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, let me pause for a minute. You need to know a context of your Bibles. We need to know the context of the Scriptures. So the Jews are living under the rule and the reign of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is respecting the sovereignty of the Jewish nation. You following me so far? I'm going to have self-esteem problems after first gathering, so I'm going to need some nonverbals. All right? All right, come on, give me some nonverbals. You follow me so far? Okay, so Rome is the empire. They respect the Jewish sovereignty. All right, so they are allowing the Jews to govern themselves, but only over the, under the governance of Rome. You with me so far? So the high priest is really a political position. You with me? The Pharisees are a political party. The, San, the, the, the Sadducees are a political party. The Essenes are a political party. And the Sanhedrin is kind of like their Congress and Senate. You with me so far? This has all been in history. It's been there for 2,000 years. It had never changed. 
All right. So religion is politics. Politics is religion. There's no merging the two because it's law. It's state. It's everything, right? Because the law of Moses is the law of life. That's their politic. That's how it works. So the Roman government allows the Jews to be their sovereign nation and handle their business. And if they handle their business right, then that means Rome doesn't have to deal with their uprising. So if they have an uprising, the Jews need to handle it first. If the Jews can't get it done, Rome will come in and handle business. You with me? So this was the Roman government saying, we will give you a certain sense of autonomy so long as you pledge allegiance to Caesar. Well, Jesus comes before the politician and the religious leaders, which is to be the political leaders, which is to be the government, and that doesn't work. So, John chapter 18, verse 28, they take him to Rome, to the governor of Rome, who governs all the Jewish governments and all the people living in this area of Rome. You with me? Verse 28, then, he, then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would have been defiled and unable to eat the Passover. Then Pilate came out and said to them, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So Pilate told them, then take him yourselves and judge him according to your what? Law. Here's their response. Well, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death. The Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the, what's this? What's the word? King. Are you the king of the Jews? King is the same word as Christ is to the Jews. Christ means king in Jewish vernacular, just like Pharaoh means king in Egyptian vernacular, just like Caesar means king in Roman vernacular, okay? So when Jesus says, I'm the Christ, he is saying, I'm the king. So Pilate says, are you really the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking me this on your own or have others told you about me? Pilate's response, clever, I'm not a Jew, am I? I'm like, in other words, why would I be hanging out with Jews? Listen to his language. Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Your socio-political insubordination has put you here. What have you done? Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight because that's what kingdoms of this world do. So that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. Oh, you are a king then, Pilate says. <laughs> you say that I'm a king, Jesus says. I was born for this. And I have come into this world for this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this, to testify to thee, say it, truth. Everyone who is of thee, listens to my voice. What? Pilate's response in his best minion voice possible is, what is truth? See, here's what truth does. This is in your blank. Truth disrupts. It disrupts power. 
The powers of the Jews, the government of the Jews couldn't handle the truth that was and is Jesus. And so since they couldn't handle and it was disrupting them because Jesus was doing all of this love. He was saying, love your neighbors, you love yourself. Love the lepers, love your enemy, love the poor, love the downtrodden, love the homeless, love the orphan, love the widow, love the foreigner. He was saying all this love, 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 this flower child Jesus and all this was doing, all this was doing was subverting their politics. And he was taking their power away. Because now the political power that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had and the rule they had over people, people were converting. And they were starting to follow Jesus. Truth disrupts power. And that is the protest of truth. And that's why we're calling it that, this series, the protest of truth. Because we all know about protests, don't we, in our country right now? Here's the thing about all protests, including the protest of truth. You ready? It's a protest because it's never in accordance with our preferences. Just like truth. See, truth is a protest because we don't prefer it at certain times. Which is why it's a protest. Because it's always and over and against what my preferences are in that moment. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Is this truth that Jesus is espousing is disrupting the powers. And that becomes the protest. See, because in the end, truth is not just a disrupting protest. Truth itself is a politic. I'll explain the word politic in a minute because it's very different than the word we use today. But I want you to look at the text first because the text is preeminent to my words. John 19, verse 4. Pilate went outside again and said to him, Look, I'm bringing him outside to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. And then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. You see that? The crown of thorns and the purple robe? The mockery of the, of the truth? You with me? And when the chief priests and the temple police saw him, they shouted, say it, crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no grounds for charging him. But see, what Pilate just did was he gave him permission. What is their response? Verse 7, say it. We have a law. We have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he made himself the what? Who's the Roman? Who's, but who's the real son of God? Caesar. And the Jews are saying, look, hey, your laws are our laws. When Pilate heard this statement, he, had, he was more afraid than ever. Because now he knows that could get him in trouble. Because now Jesus has said something that Caesar has expressly said cannot be said. That's why Pilate's uneasy now. I was good until you told me that. Truth disrupts. So then he goes in into the headquarters and asks Jesus, verse 9, where are you from? And Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. And that is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, 
Pilate made every effort to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, listen, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes, say it, Caesar. See, the reality of this text is truth is a politic. It is a politic. Politic as defined by Plato and Aristotle, who first used the word polis, which literally meant the whole of the community, which had within its original definition the idea of human flourishing for a community or a citizenry as a whole. Politic was not party partisan in the eyes and the minds of Plato and Aristotle and people who used the word. Politic simply means a way a social people are governed as a social people. So here's the deal. God has a politic. Jesus has a politic. The kingdom of God is political. It's just not party political. The kingdom of God has a politic because the kingdom of God has a king. And that king has established a law or a way of being. And that king has said... All those who are citizens of my kingdom must live in accordance to this law or this way of governance. Are you with me? The kingdom of God is political. It's just not interested in our party politics. Jesus' claims were political. And he wasn't trying to be. He was just telling the what? Truth. And it just so happens that the truth bumped up against his society's ideologies and politics. Because in his world, there's only room for one king, and that king is Caesar. But in the cosmos, there's only room for one king, and that king is Jesus. That's why all this language is political here. That's why John included all the language. He didn't have to include this account. But he's including it so he can understand that truth is a protest. Because it disrupts power. And it disrupts ideologies. And it disrupts how I want to live my life. The truth disrupts how I want to govern my life. And then Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to be Lord of you though, buddy. And then at my baptism, I pledge allegiance to the Lord. And then I try to take the reins as much as possible while my country, my neighbor, my spouse, my kids, my friends try to get my allegiance and make that allegiance first. And Jesus is saying, I'm king. And I'm Lord. See, truth is a politic. Because central to the process of making decisions that apply to all members of a society, there must be some understanding of truth. What is good? What is right? What is, if you're a Christian, holy? What is, if you're a Christian, love? You with me so far? See, truth disrupts, doesn't it? Some of us are starting to feel the little thing in our stomach. It's been in the narrative for 2,000 years, y'all. 
just been wearing a different set of glasses. What killed Christians was when they confessed that Jesus was king and Caesar was not. What's killing Christians in other countries right now is they're confessing that Jesus is king and their king is not. We're just free to confess anything we want here. And so truth doesn't disrupt us until it does. And truth doesn't protest until it's completely inconvenient. Truth isn't concerned with our patriotism or just our personage. Truth is concerned with the Lordship of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the way, say it with me, the truth and the life. He said, those who hear my voice hear truth. Those who believe are a people of truth hear my voice. Jesus has a politic church. A way of living that is grounded in the truth as revealed in him and his way of life. Jesus as king of a kingdom, a governing reality to which all Christians have pledged allegiance, has decreed a politic, a rule by which his citizens should live an orderly life, which is what a politic is. Jesus did have a politic, but he did not call the disciples to enforce it, only to embody it. And that is the marked difference of the politics of the kingdom of God is it's a way of life to be embodied, not to be enforced upon another. Oh, now that disrupts. And that way of life becomes a protest. You don't believe me? You're struggling with it? Let's keep reading our Bibles together. Turn to Acts chapter 4. See, what's happened is the church has been birthed all across the world now. Jesus is Lord and He's risen and He's King of kings and Lord of lords. No matter where I live, everything else is secondary. Hey man, Caesar matters, but he doesn't matter that much. Rome matters, but it doesn't matter that much. Jesus is Lord, he's king, and I'm a citizen of a kingdom that's never going to be in trouble, and all other kingdoms are going to be a footnote in the pages of history. That was the confession. And signs and wonders have been performed, and Peter and John saw this disabled man sitting on the street, and they decided that in the name of Jesus, they would heal this man, and he was healed. And the problem with this now is the Jewish leaders, the Jewish government, is now losing more power. They thought they crucified the power, right? Like we killed the power problem. We killed the truth that was disrupting us and protesting everything we believe. Well, now this truth gave birth to a community of truth, and now it's just really ticking everybody off. And they're losing their power again. And people are starting to follow and follow and follow. And so finally, Peter and John do this healing, and now they have to face the Jewish leadership. So verse 5, the next day, their rulers, chapter 4, verse 5, the next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family, the Senate and the Congress, are now meeting with the president. And after they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked this question, by what? What's the word? Power. See, they're real concerned about power. By what power? Or in what name, authority, have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, thanks be to God, because Peter would have been up a creek without the Holy Spirit, probably. And said to them, rulers of the people and elders, 
If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, man, this brother is bold, that by the name of Jesus the King, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is, and he quotes scripture, he quotes the law. The stone is rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it, not the Pax Romana. Verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men who had not gone to seminary, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response, because that's really how truth ultimately is. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, the governing body, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. Like Winston Churchill was right, actually. And there it is. However, verse 17, so this does not spread any further among the people. Truth is the protest. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, arguably one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, man, you decide. As for us, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them because they found no way to punish them. Truth is a politic. It disrupts power. This is the protest of truth. Because there is a morality that is true. Therefore, other moralities that are false. There is a way of life that is true and therefore other ways of life that are false. There are ideologies that are true and therefore other ideologies that are false. There are allegiances that are true and other allegiances that are false. And church, in this season and in this time and in this city, in the commonwealth and in this nation and in this day, we need to be certain we know the truth. So what is their response? Truth disrupts, it's a politic. Well, their response is to pray. Not to go out and start fighting the way the world fights. Their response is to pray. Because they know the cost now. Peter and John have just been arrested. There is a protest to this truth that they proclaim. There's a cost. There's a price to pay. And so they hit their knees and pray. In Acts 4, verse 23 31, verse 23. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. In other words, Lord, 
their response was to pray. And you can read that prayer because it's quite a political prayer, a subversive prayer. See, in your, in, your, in your bulletins, there's a blank, and it's a community of truth prays for discernment. If a community of truth is going to embody the truth it proclaims, it needs to discern what embodying that truth looks like in its context. Because there's going to be a price to embodying the truth. Our brothers and sisters who yesterday or tomorrow, depending on what side of the world they live in, as they live in persecuted countries, they have to discern how they're going to meet together as Christians. Because they're going to embody the truth. And it's going to cost them something. There's a chance that they could be interrupted in the middle of their gathering and be tortured, fined, or killed. See, community of truth who understands that truth disrupts and that truth is a politic and so they allow truth to organize their life together because truth is ultimately bound up in a person, they know that if they're going to embody that truth, they have to be a people who know how to pray for discernment because they have to know how to live out the truth in a truthless world. In other words, according to your blanks here, they need to know how to improvise. Unfortunately, God didn't give us a 10-point bullet 10 bulleted point sort of document on how to live out the truth in every single context. We have to improvise it. We have to contextualize it. We have to apply it where we are. Living the Christian faith in Williamsburg, Virginia is going to look different than living the Christian faith in Mazul. Am I right? But it's still the Christian faith. We're just going to have to embody it differently. And so... A community of truth learns to improvise in a truthless world of improvisation. I call it a world of improvisation because it's a world that's lost its sense of truth. And when the, tr- when the world has lost its sense of truth, when society's lost its sense of truth, th- what's the basis of society at that point? And many of us are thinking right now, well, it should be Christianity! Well, then if that's true, then know that Christians aren't called to enforce their faith. They're called to embody it instead. And vote all the live long day. We've got to embody what we believe. Neighbor to neighbor. Person to person. And let the chips fall where the chips fall. In an age of secularism, we're done with culture wars here. Jesus is Lord. And that I believe. So what did the church do? Chapter 5, verse 32. Now a large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. In other words, truth. (laughs) Listen to this text, man. This is after they prayed and after they had been arrested. You know what their response was? Care for one another. Embody this truth. You got an extra home, sell it. Because old brother doesn't have a home. That's what they did in the text. That was their response. Their response was to embody it. Not to get on Facebook and Twitter and share stuff because everybody's brave behind a computer screen. It's a whole nother ball game to embody it with the homeless, with the poor, with the intellectually disabled and mentally ill, with the rich, with the black and with the white and with the brown, or with the Muslim or with whatever. It's a whole other thing to embody an ethic of love, which is truth. 
real to real, person to person, flesh to flesh, which is exactly what God did in Jesus, right? He could have just told us about truth, but instead he put skin on to show us what truth looks like. Because Jesus is what God looks like. And he created a community that's supposed to look like truth. And this is what it looks like. It looks like love. It's always going to. And this is where it gets you. Because just a few chapters later in this same discourse of Acts, as the Christian movement begins to take root, now it's into Gentile land. Look at what happens in Acts chapter 17. It's one of my favorite narratives of all. Because see, when we start improvising truth as a community of truth in a truthless world, and we start embodying the truth we proclaim, this is what happens. But the Jews, Acts chapter 17, verse 5, but the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace. Well, they're, they're jealous because the Christian movement is taking root. Formed a mob, okay, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house because Jason was keeping one of some of the disciples at the time. Jason was a Greek who had converted. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them, them being the disciples, to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, before the government, shouting, read this with me, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. <laughs> Listen to that. These men who have turned the world upside down, all the values and priorities and allegiances we hold dear, their way of life has flipped it inside out. And he says, and they've come here to jack with our city too. Don't let them mess with our city. Our way of life. And look at what it says. And Jason has received them as guests. Listen to this. They are all acting contrary to, say it with me, Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king that is. And that is what happens. So here's your last blank. A community of truth embodies its proclamation by practicing self-giving love that reasons with the world through faithful presence, humble rhetoric, and if need be, courageous martyrdom, never by coercive force. Did you sign up for that in your baptism? Did you? Did I? We have to wrestle with this question. In this day and age right now, because many of us in Christianity, and some of us in this church, are acting like we're Americans first and Christians second. When we are Christians first and Americans second. And that looks like something. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Embodying the way of life of self-giving love, reasoning with the world through our faithful presence, which means we've got to enter into the fray, reasoning with them with humble rhetoric, not angry rhetoric, not malicious rhetoric, but humble rhetoric like they did. Entering in and being willing to face the consequences of that, even if it meant the worst possible scenario, 
That is the Christian faith we all stand upon. Because it's right there. If a church really embodies the politics of God in their locality, they're going to be seen as a different kind of people. Because they're not going to care so much what Caesar says as much as they care what Jesus says. And every single week, we proclaim that truth. Where the most liberal and the most conservative, the most dogmatic, and the most progressive, the most open-minded, and the most closed-minded, the richest and the poorest, the darkest and the lightest, all come to the same table, confessing the same confession, and putting all those other things underneath that confession that says, Jesus is Lord. I'm not. We do that every week. But this table has to be lived and not just practiced once a week too.